Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Party people in the place. Age custody. We really rocking now, Shag. You know the two bandit them there. It's a celebration. Relevant. Yeah. Shorty. Your man don't treat you like a lady. You've been together too long. And life's getting kind of boring. And the days seem long. So while he lay there sleeping, you're texting me in bed. Hey, girl. You say you want some excitement. You'd rather me instead. Let's go. If you like Pina Colada, making love in the rain, skinny dipping in the ocean, pampered and entertained. If you like making love at midnight, this can be so insane. Then I'm the man you should look for. Come with me and escape, escape. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I want to go sit down, you know. Because singer, you don't tell her already, you know. See, I like this because it redeems the pina colada-ness of this song, which I understand is a song many of you find annoying. I mean, the original. I, I also want to say the original was written by a very smart, very interesting Englishman named Rupert Holmes, who went on to write a lot of other stuff that was more kind of jazz standards, and he had at least one Broadway musical, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And, and that he knew, I talked, I had a long talk with him one day, and he understood that people will never forgive him for writing this song, um, and that it'll be the main, it'll be the first thing in his obit and all that kind of stuff, but I, I kind of like this version of it, and certainly everything these days has to have Shaggy on it, right? And Shaggy's got his own, it sounds like a joke, but he's got his Produced by Sting, album of Sinatra covers out right now. It's not as good as this, I would just like to say, too. And I believe he's also possibly going to be the no-labels candidate for president. Uh, I don't know if that's been firmed up or not, but Shaggy's just everywhere. The problem with his Sinatra covers, by the way, is he just doesn't Shaggy them enough. They're, they're, they're not Pina Colada enough. They're just him kind of singing, you know, come fly with me over a little bit of a reggae beat, but not really doing anything with it. Anyway, enough about Shaggy. Let's hear from you. The number, it's Ask or Tell Me Anything Day, 888-720-WNPR. My name is Colin. I will be your waiter. Have you dined with us before? Because we do things a little bit differently here. You can call 888-720-9677. And, and people have, uh, as one would hope. And let's give you just a sample of how much fun this can be for Literally everyone. Uh, <laughs> Mary Jo from Milford. Hi, you have the floor. Hi, Colin. How are you? I am fine <laughs> enough. Fine enough. Good. Happy Fourth of July. Um, I'm calling about um, the gun violence issue. You know, there are two mass, mass shootings uh, just within the past couple of days. There's we're up to 388 for the year. So. Um, I have um, two two ideas that I'd like to be discussed. 
One is that the 60% of deaths are by suicide. Uh, gun deaths are yeah. by suicide. Um, I'm hearing myself in the background. Let me turn this off. <laughs> oh, yes, you want to do that. If you're calling the show, please turn the radio down in the background because it will okay, mess with your yeah. brain, cause so permanent brain damage. I don't want to, to hear myself exactly. talking and then what I just said at the same time. Right. Um, so 60% of deaths by guns are suicidal. Um, and I, I've heard about a law that was initiated in New Orleans by the daughter of a woman who was very active um, and a lawyer there. The woman had killed herself, um, and so the law essentially asked people who have suicidal thoughts to register themselves so that they are not allowed to get a gun. So that's, Connecticut doesn't have that law. A number of states do. So that's one idea. And the second idea is, comes from my own thinking, um, that uh, going back to Columbine, and I was a superintendent of schools at the time, uh, it's, it's, all these people have a record that's been that could be access of what they intended to do. I'm talking about the mass shooters, mm-hmm. uh, and yet uh, people uh, people don't uh, take action. They don't tell authorities. Uh, you know, sometimes they give them guns, as a case in Newtown, but. I just think there ought to be some, like, mandated reporter like we have uh, for child abuse to DCF uh, that says, you know, you have to inform us, us being the state, the police, whatever. You have to inform us if there's somebody out there who's a danger to uh, the community, and I'm I'm, well, that, I know that's for, that is essentially the law as it stands right now. In other words, uh, a therapist or, or other mandated reporter who feels that someone is a danger to him or herself or to others is required to report that. Now, that's a somewhat fuzzy call. You know, I mean, it's it's an easy call in some cases, uh, but there's this vast gray area where, particularly if you're a therapist, for example, you want a person to be able to talk. Uh, therapy needs to be kind of a safe environment for people to air some of their more appetizing, unappetizing thoughts, excuse me. And so, but, you know, if it's a clear case of, and, and there have been, I mean, this became kind of a, a a major case in the so-called lottery shooting, the Connecticut lottery shooting, um, whether Matthew Beck's therapist should have understood what he was talking about and how dangerous he was. But, you know, therapists will tell you, look, if they reported everybody who talked about suicidal ideation or who talked about, you know, kind of violent impulses towards others. They'd just be reporting people all the time, you know. That we're... I, I'm, I'm not talking about therapists. I'm talk, talking about parents, relatives, uh, um, associate friends. Um, well, I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's a way to fix that, you know. In other words, I mean, if we, we think, of, think about Adam Lanza, clearly – his mother didn't understand who she was dealing with, and of course, she paid the ultimate price for it. Um, and and I think you know you you mentioned Columbine at the top. Um, you know, ha- having read Dave Cullen's excellent book on it, 
I, I'm not really sure it's clear that the parents knew that this is something that they should report. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I first of all, I totally applaud everything that you're wanting to do here. But um, I, in, I think the larger question is, are we ever going to do anything about the access to guns? You know, I mean, it, it is... It, it is a larger question, but that seems to be... Um, uh, a question that never gets answered. I was listening to the mayor of Baltimore, uh, Mr. Scott, mm-hmm. uh, after that terrible shooting this weekend. And what he was calling for, and most mayors call for, is a national plan to end the violence that is killing our kids and killing each other. And But he... He, he's, they've done things that in Baltimore are working for them to try to prevent uh, those violent acts. But if we don't have a Congress or we don't have anybody at the top who's really has, uh, except Chris Murphy in our case in Blumenthal, but we don't have too many people who are willing to go out on a limb and push legislation that would ban no, that is abs- uh, that's absolutely IR-15. true. Well, anyway, I applaud what you're suggesting, Mary Jo. Um, I mean, I applaud the sentiment behind it. My concern would be, you know, if you create a nation of mandated reporters, um, you start stigmatizing people who have problems, problems that are not going to result in mass shootings or anything like it. Uh, and, and the question becomes, you know, how who makes that, that determination? Who does the culling of, of all those reports? Um, I, I'm not sure that we want to turn it into that kind of almost psychiatric police state. Um, but, you know, it's – it's. We, I mean, I, I would agree anyway. We have to start having conversations about other things than gun legislation since we're apparently not going to get any of that. Um, although I really would like to keep the heat on about it. Hey, before I go to the other calls, and we have Pamela from Lake Como, Ohio. We're so big in Lake Como, Ohio right now. I mean, it's just – Kind of amazing how the show has taken off there. but um, And we've got uh, Eric from Cheshire, uh, and we've got room for you at 888-720-WNPR. You don't have to call about you know issues of policy, things in the news. You can call about things that are in your heart. You can th- call about things that are just matters of life. Um, you can call about philosophy, the arts, anything you want. So speaking of all that, I just want to give you guys a quick update, and then we'll get back to the callers here. Uh, but... Um, you may have heard that last week we did a show called So Bad, It's Good. And the premise was, this was produced by our new producer, McCusker. Uh, and McCusker, uh, the premise was, there are some things that need to be sort of understood that way. And we, we talked about bad, intentionally bad writing. Uh, we talked about uh, bad smells that people pay a lot of money to buy as scents. But at the end, we did kind of a, a novel thing. We We aired a kind of conversation among the producers of this show and me about uh, ideas for episodes that I had turned down, that I had turned down in a brutal and heartbreaking way with every intention of destroying the the psyche of the person who had made the proposal. That's my interpretation anyway. (laughs) Um, So anyway, what McCusker then proposed was that people be allowed to vote, Uh, people be allowed to vote uh, for um, for one of these ideas to now be turned into it. These are shows we never did. So there was an idea 
to do a show about Anne of Green Gables. I said I didn't want to do a show about Anne of Green Gables. There was an idea twice, two different producers, uh, uh, they proposed a show about filibusters. I didn't want to do that show. And then McCusker almost pr- uh, proposed a show about dreams but heard that I would turn it down. I see, I feel like that's – it's a little bit like the, you know – the the LGBTQ case with the Supreme Court, where the woman never actually had to make a website. <laughs> Nobody ever asked her to make a website, um, you know. But yet she still felt that she had standing, and they did too. Anyway, but anyway, McCusker felt that I, you know, I had sort of, in a kind of minority report way, in an anticipatory way, I'd already turned down this idea that I hadn't been told about. And she's kind of right; dreams are kind of a boring topic. And then I had, in a foolhardy moment. Uh, come on, uh, come into a meeting and said that I was intrigued by birdseed, like wild birdseed, because I'd bought a big bag of it and it said grown in the United States, which made me wonder, <laughs> is there kind of offshore birdseed that's not as good? You know, and do we buy some from China? But also, like, who grows birdseed? Like, is there, are there farms where that's what they do? That's what they get up every day is they go out and they tend to the birdseed. I got... I got 40 acres of millet here right now. Birds are going to love this. You know, because usually if you're a farmer, you don't want the birds to eat what you're growing. <laughs> anyway, I'm overselling my own idea. They thought it was really stupid. So those, those are the um, ideas. And we are going to do one of them based on which gets the most votes. At the moment, Anne of Green Gables is way in the lead with nine votes. This hasn't been a massive plebiscite. Um, and then filibusters at six, birdseed at three, dreams at two. See, I told you dreams is a bad idea. And then um, uh, some kind of combination um, to people. We didn't really offer that option, but people wanted to show about people who dream of Anne of Green Gables eating birdseed and then filibustering about it. I, I don't know. So you could vote. Colin Show. That's the email address, right? Colin Show, all one word. Colin Show at ctpublic.org. You can email there or you can go to Twitter at Colin McShow. You could, you know, in one way or another register. Assuming that Elon Musk lets you do things because he's just making new rules all the time. But you can try to vote there or on Facebook at Colin McShow. Uh, but I think, you know, emailing Colin Show is the best idea. Or you can call You can call right now and vote for something. 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. Let's go straight, straight out of Lake Como, Ohio. It is uh, Pamela calling. Hi, Pamela. Hey, how you doing? Just fine, just fine. Um, I'm calling. I'm, I'm with you on the bird seat, but I'm calling about a different issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about the Supreme Court case where the, the, the woman who had purportedly a uh, website uh, company at, that was building websites, but not necessarily for weddings. And suddenly she's a wedding uh, website builder. And then she claimed that she was being discriminated against by the state of Colorado because of the rules that required her to take all comers for her, her websites. And I just learned uh, in reading that the um, she was denied in two lower courts. Her case was thrown out because she couldn't actually prove that she was harmed in any way. She didn't have any client that had uh, turned her down or complained because they didn't get a website for a same-sex marriage. But the Supreme Court heard it anyway. And the New Republic reported 
on the day that the Supreme Court made their decision public, that there was no client. The, the person that they named was a heterosexual man who lived in California who had been married for years and never asked for a wedding website. And the group behind, there's a, um, a large Christian coalition behind this uh, case, claimed, well, we couldn't really investigate him because it would have violated his privacy. I'm really concerned that the Supreme Court is just going off board and deciding on cases where the woman doesn't even have a business and a fictional client. What's next? This well, group. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Keep going. This group, I think they're the ADL or ADF, I forget what their exact name is. They've changed their name a couple of times. Their main goal is to eliminate uh, contraception, same-sex marriage. They are mission-driven. So if the Supreme Court is just picking cases, fictional cases at random, they could be ruling on whatever. And I don't see anybody getting excited about this. Well, there is some excitement about it. I was trying to look it up just now, and I can't find it. But I believe it's Neil Katyal, the the, uh, lawyer and expert in jurisprudence, uh, who said that 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 case could theoretically be reopened because of this issue of kind of ripeness or standing. Uh, and, I mean, I doubt the Supreme Court would... I mean, the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of its own behavior, uh, and so it's kind of unlikely that they would agree to do it. But you could make a motion to reopen the case based on the fact that it was not fully understood, that there really wasn't any kind of ripe you know, instance of harm or anything like that. But, yeah, no, I, I sort of am with you in the sense that I think we are living through a time. There's a really interesting piece in The Times right now about how much John Roberts is harming the institution that he is so dedicated to preserving and upholding simply by letting it run wild in this way or being unable or unwilling to check some of this stuff. I mean, I think some of this is on him. He, in some ways, Jonathan Chait also has a piece today saying he's really the last real Republican in the sense that he he does sort of care about tradition and institution and he's not a bomb thrower and he's not, you know, a political, uh, you know, calculator. Uh, but the truth is it's on him to keep his court from going nuts all the time. And and I, I would agree with you. It's We are at a bizarre moment when this phantom case can, by the way, the, the group that you're talking about is the same group that sponsored, funded, and organized the wedding cake case quite a few years ago. That was a, in the same area. It was in the Littleton, Colorado area. I think one case was in, within about five miles of the other. That was the guy who was being asked to make a, a, a wedding cake for a gay couple. He actually – there was a real case there. I mean, you know, and, and because Anthony Kennedy was still on the court, it went the other way. Um, but at least there was – a couple asking him for a cake. I mean, when I first heard about the website case, I thought, well, it seems unlikely. It seems weird that someone, a gay couple, would want to get their wedding site done by somebody who probably told them pretty early on, I don't believe in what you're doing. <laughs> like, if I'm a gay couple, I want somebody who's really into me and wants to like make my marriage look really good online. So uh, in a way, finding that sample case is like if you knew that the baker didn't let you didn't believe in gay marriage you probably wouldn't ask him to make your cake maybe that couple didn't know right right and what kind of website would this woman make yeah <laughs> right no that's her you know comes yeah, was, come see burn and ernie before they go burn in hell um <laughs> anyway well thanks for your call pamela i share your concern about the supreme court 
I do wish that uh, that John Roberts would do something. Uh, we're going to go to Cheryl in Plainville and then Eric in Cheshire. I just I'm going to Cheryl first because or Plantsville. I'm sorry, Plantsville. People from Plantsville hate it when you say Plainville, um, and because uh, it may sort of tie in a little bit to what Pamela was just talking about. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Plantsville is a part of Southington. Hi, Colin. I have two questions that been uh, or, or maybe statements I'd like to make that's been burning for a while. And um, maybe you can just give me a quick answer or uh, help me understand this. Um, the Supreme Court division uh, is in division lopsided. And I've also often wondered, isn't there a division between church and state? Since a lot of their uh, decisions are being based on uh, religious philosophy, and it just absolutely drives me insane. Well, they can't really make decisions based on religious philosophy. And if you look at how these cases are decided, I mean, if you look at how they go and talk in other contexts, whether it's Amy Coney Barrett or Samuel Alito, who, as somebody recently said in his non-court utterances, is starting to sound like a right-wing talk radio show host. But I mean, in terms of what they, in terms of how they opine, no, I mean, they are at least, you know, putatively bound by law and by the Constitution. So they, they can't say, you know, we're, re, we're overturning Roe v. Wade because God wants us to. That's, that's not an available ra- rationale okay, to them. But, but I understand bound by the law, mm. but they say they're basing everything on the framers' initial ideas. This is ridiculous. We're 240 years, 47 years out from the Declaration of Independence, you know? Right. Really? But, uh, well, I mean, I, I agree with the sentiment here. I mean, I have repeatedly said that the Constitution is a defective document. You know, even the way in which it came into existence was defective. But, you know, once again, as a matter uh, of law and, uh, and of the Constitution, that's sort of what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be looking for constitutional rationales you know, for the decisions they make. Now, I think we've seen enough of this to know how often the Constitution's kind of a Rorschach blot. I mean, they can sort of see, see stuff there you know, that they want to see. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there, is, there, isn't, yeah, there really isn't another alternative right now to the Constitution, uh, at least not. No, I guess I'm looking for an alternative. Yeah. Well, you need All a right, new Constitution. My, okay, go my, ahead. Yeah, well, update, hello. Yeah. All right, my, my next problem is... Um, I listened to a morning program this morning about the media doesn't do this and the media doesn't do that. And um, I want to refer back to the Trump uh, fiasco or whatever you want to call it. Uh, as, as an election worker, I find it absolutely ridiculous. And I've always wanted to call on this, but never have. Um, that these people who are election deniers, are so uninformed it's, uh, regarding the election process. In short, I'd like to say, instead of being election watchers, they should uh, actually work at the voting booths and see what's going on. I've been an election worker for many years, and I, I have not heard a program where they've interviewed election workers. I've heard about the state and the towns and this and that. Mm-hmm. But as an election worker... We go through training. We're we're nonpartisan. Um, at the election, we're not Republican. We're not Democrat. At the election, 
We have an we have a Republican representative and we have a Democrat representative. Right. We and, go through training and we have years and years of experience. These ridiculous election watcher, watchers. I mean, I I find it incredibly stupid. I I well, first of all, let me just say, and I've got to get to a break here. I don't mean to cut you off, but um, you know, I can't call it up right now out of my head, but I believe there have been some instances where. Uh, election doubters have worked as election watcher, ele- election workers, and have been kind of radicalized and converted to the cause. And they they have said, you know what, it's not the way that they told us on, you know, the Sean Hannity show. It's very different. And it, it is, you know, a high functioning, trustworthy system. But anyway, to me, the the greater alarm now, and I think it was on with Aisha Roscoe on Sunday, some somewhere over the weekend, I heard her kind of a report about the number of election workers who have been threatened, uh, who have been harassed, who've had their cars followed. Um, and that's very worrisome uh, because election workers, well, first of all, they're like gold. We need them uh, and we don't want to see them driven out of their roles. Uh, not, there's nothing there to replace them. All right. So let's take a break. We'll come back after the proverbial this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. If I'm being honest, you understand the assignment. What we have is so vibrant. It's a special alignment. So I pick the one, you pick the playlist. I hit the lights, you hit my favorite spots. I be a private entertainment. And I can never get enough. Baby, it's you. All right, so we're back. And, well, first of all, we're going to go to Eric from uh, from Cheshire next, and nothing can deter me from doing that. But I do want to give you a, an update. <laughs> Apparently, there's been a rash of voting during this show for the rejected topics um, tally. So right now, Anne of Green Gables is now clinging, clinging, clinging to a narrow lead. She has only nine votes. I mean, she has the same nine votes she started the hour with. Meanwhile, filibusters coming on strong with eight votes uh, for a show about filibusters. 
a show about birdseed. Where does birdseed come from? Who grows birdseed? Let's talk to a birdseed farmer. I'm kind of plumping a little bit for that one. <laughs> it has five votes, and Dreams is trailing with four. So uh, you, I guess you – I don't know. Are they sending them to Colin's show? Is that how they're doing this? Colin's show at ctpublic.org. Or you could just call in here. You can – just tell McPants what it is you're voting for. I mean, assuming we feel that this process is trustworthy. And I'm not aware that McPants, who's answering the phones right now, has you know a preference or anything. Um, all right. So here we go. We're going to talk to uh, Eric from Cheshire. Hi, Eric. I'm sorry you had to wait so long. Oh. That's all right, Colin. Thank you. Um, I've uh, just been reading uh, today's epi- uh, today's um, issue of the Republican America, a uh, uh, Republican American, uh, an article uh, tight, uh, with the subtitle of "Landlords' Rent Increase Puts Thousands uh, at Risk of Eviction." Um, and as you, you mentioned in introducing me in your call, I live in the town of Cheshire. And uh, Cheshire only has three and a half, something like three and a half percent of its housing affordable. Some, some affordable housing being based on the median income of the people in the town, which could be quite high. I suspect is quite high. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, uh, the rest being uh, HUD uh, Section 8 housing, which is based on 30 per- where the rent is based on 30 uh, percent of a person's income. Uh, I live in a HUD um, Section 8 unit uh, for people with uh, for people who are senior citizens and disabled. Uh, and uh, one of my neighbors recently received, an eviction notice uh, for not paying his rent on time. And uh, when I uh, met him while on a walk, uh, he was in a real panic. And uh, he, uh, was, he, he was really angry and even contemplated committing suicide. Uh, this, uh, you know, he, this particular neighbor uh has severe psychiatric issues uh and actually uh after receiving the notice his uh anxiety evolved into rage and he knocked loud on uh the door of the occupancy manager and when she opened it he yelled at her to try to vent his rage uh, and uh, she called the police, and uh, he ended up being charged with breach of peace and a uh, hundred ten dollar fine. Wow! So, Eric, uh, yeah, I just I, I, we, because our time is limited. I mean, maybe we can sort of generalize this a little bit more. I do feel as though we're going through a crisis of conscience about this issue right now, especially in Connecticut, where there's a lot of expensive property, not a lot of affordable property, and there are 169 towns, each one operating as an individual fiefdom. Uh, a lot of them don't do not. I mean, New Canaan's going through some real convulsions about this right now, and a lot of them just when it really gets down to it do not want to allow affordable housing. They have a a prejudice against it. They think it's going to bring in a different kind of person uh, that they don't want. 
What I don't quite understand is where they think the people who do certain kinds of work, including working for the town itself, are supposed to live or whether they're supposed to commute long distances, which we also kind of don't want people to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are some some pretty serious efforts being made uh, or have been made at the state legislature level. And, you know, but I, 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 I feel the pain of the person that you're talking about. It just sounds like a horrible situation, a horrible triggering situation. And and I, I certainly hope that they can get that revo- resolved somehow. But, you know, ultimately we are going to have to acknowledge that people need places to live. And this is, by the way, not completely disconnected from the national conversation we're having right now on student debt, another Supreme Court uh, verdict of the last few days. Because people with a lot of student debt have a hard time coming up with money for housing down payments or even, you know, rent that uh, is is in excess of you know thirty percent or something like that. Um, so you know it's like we've sent out into the world a generation of people who are economically crippled. Crippled. They're having a hard time just finding places to live, finding you know reasonable and decent places to live. And and this is a place where the government can't just sit, sit back and in the John Roberts sense of things called balls and strikes. They have to step in affirmatively and try to try to help out. Uh, and, and maybe put pressure, uh, as they're starting to do, uh, on, on some of these municipalities to relax their zoning, uh, make it possible for people to have a place to live, but especially people who have a job in the town. You know, we don't want our highways clogged with people driving 45 minutes to their jobs. Um, you know, everybody wins if we can fix this uh, in in a way that's suitable, generous, and just um, conscious of the needs of other people. Uh, unfortunately, we're turning into a society where people just think about themselves. Uh, all right, here is Peter from Wallingford. Hi, Peter. Hi, Colin. Um, yeah, the people that use the old saying, don't do as I do, do as I say, could apply to people like, you know, Trump or Herbert Hoover or um, Vladimir Putin that doesn't want gays in this country. Is he a married guy? We don't hear anything about his personal life. What could you tell us? On, on who who is this guy that uh, criticizes uh, the public uh, for what they do and who they are? Well, my crack research department points out that he was married uh, from, let's see, 1983 to 2014. He's divorced. He does have a mistress. Uh, his mistress is Alina Kabaeva. Um, there was an investigation by Proact, a, a Russian independent investigative media outlet, uh, that found that he had a, um, provided her, his mistress, with a $15 million uh, apartment, uh, penthouse apartment. So with a swimming pool, a movie theater, a patio, and a private helipad on the roof. So, I mean, you know, and you, yeah. you, swim, you swim with oligarchs, you start to act like uh, an oligarch. So, yeah, that's who he uh, is. Um, he's a weird guy. and um, Evil. Evil, I would say. Yeah, well, yeah, I wouldn't argue with you. Uh, anyway, I hope that satisfies. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Your, Interesting. Your curiosity. All right. So uh, thanks very much for that. Let me just see here. So we have some open lines right now. Let me tell you some other stuff. Okay. So first of all, the number 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. You do not have to call up about a news item uh, or an issue in the news. You can call up about, you know, what of life's deep mysteries that you have either solved or would like solved. You could call. I was fascinated today to read about this bet between a neuroscientist. I forget what his name was. His last name is Koch, K-O-C-H, like the Koch brothers, uh, and David Chalmers, who's a well-known philosopher. 
And they had bet in, let's see, it must have been 20, uh, 1998, uh, they had bet that in 25 years, science would come up with an explanation, a biomedical explanation uh, of consciousness. I'm summarizing here. I, I'm, that may not, I think I have the bet right, though. And that recently, <laughs> recently, and the Chalmers, the philosopher, and he's a dualist philosopher. He, he believes that essentially there will never be a purely biomedical explanation of the nature of consciousness and why it exists and why it is the way it is. But uh, And so he said, I, I guess these two guys are pretty good friends too, that he felt a little bad taking the bet because he just knew he was going to win it. Uh, and also because the, all the pressure was on science, uh, they had to, you know, they have to prove something that currently hasn't been proven. Anyway, 25 years went by in a flash. And so the neuroscientist, Dr. Koch, uh, had to provide David Chalmers with, I think, some really expensive wine. I think that was the nature of the bet. First of all, where's FanDuel on all this? Why aren't they just opening this whole thing up? I would have, I would have put it down a bet on Chalmers, you know, so fast it would have made your head swim. I would have done that and either given or taken points. I, I don't really understand betting. I never understand which thing is better. You know, there's one thing that you want and one thing you don't want. Anyway, I would have taken a bet which had been engineered to create even less of an advantage for me. Uh, but I wasn't given that opportunity. All right. So we are going to – just wondering whether maybe we should just take a break. Some calls oh, are on the screen. No, we've got one ready to go. Here we go. We don't have to take a break. Calls are coming in here. Here's Jess calling from Coventry. Hi, Jess. Hi, Colin. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Um, my, my question or topic is this. Um, I've noticed a lot, especially in the past few years, on NPR as well as other – TV stations, et cetera, and radio stations, um, every time a message is put out, there seems to be this habit of having to put background music behind it. Now, I'm a musician, and what happens to me is the first thing I my ears go to is the music. I'm trying to figure out what instruments are there, what else is going on in there, and I don't, the message doesn't come through. So I just want to know who, who out there is thinking that, oh, we're going to add music to this, and and get the message across better because I guess I disagree with that. Yeah, you know, I, 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 that's an interesting point. Uh, and, and for you, I can see why that would be a problem. And, and I don't, uh, I can't necessarily articulate the wisdom behind what we call beds. Um, there are music beds that we put behind all kinds of stuff, uh, promos. And I do something called a billboard that happens right before the news that comes on right before yep. the show. That usually, in fact, we had a very special and very good uh, bed today that was. Uh, provided to us by Dylan Rays. Um, you know, for me, as the person speaking with the bed, if it's the right kind of music, it actually can push my delivery in a different direction. And I really appreciate having it. Uh, and one of the reasons, I mean, like the w- one we had today that was on at, at I guess, 12.59 or whatever, um, I hadn't heard it in advance. I didn't know what it was. It made me laugh as I started to talk along with it. You know, you, you might sort of tune your own rhythms to the bed. I'm a little unusual because I do this stuff without a script anyway. I'm always kind of improvising it. But I, I think it's just sort of people think it will sound weird if it's just we call that dry. There's no music behind it. I think there's kind of a sense that it would sound weird, somebody just talking. It's a little bit more appetizing if you get the right music. But I also get what you're saying, which is that if you okay. care a lot about music. Uh, but I don't really yeah. know the theory. You know, if there's a theory written down somewhere, I haven't read it yet. I think for me, and I know other people that I've talked to, it's very distracting. So that's the other side of this. But I get what you're saying, too. You know, it can be uplifting. It can set a mood. 
do all kinds of things like that. But anyways, thank you for right. talking about Sure. No problem, Jess. Uh, and another thing that Kat is pointing out here is that there's uh, another reason for this is for some people. And it, I think it's pretty useful for me because, once again, most people who – if you hear somebody doing a promo for an upcoming show or doing that billboard that happens right before the show comes on the air, they're usually working from uh, text, from pre-written text. I improvise all those. It's helpful to me because I know when <laughs> – when I'm running out of time, particularly with the you know the ones that we usually use, there's a little drum part that comes in that always tells me, oh, better wrap it up. Um, so that's another re- reason. It just sort of kind of helps you, you know, keep to the time allotted to you. All right. So, okay. So if Iman and Robert will promise to stay on, because I'm very excited about both of their calls. I think we're sort of getting into the area that I think this show should get into. We'll take a very quick break here. We will come back. We will talk to Robert from West Hartford and the immortal Iman from New Haven. And we're back. Time to say some thank yous. Uh, one of the thank yous is to Cat Pastor. She is the technical producer of all this nonsense uh, and the person uh, screening the calls and doing other things as well. Producer kind of things uh, is Jonathan McPants. Our senior producer is Lily Tyson. Her husband. Do we have secret ballots here or are this kind of a public thing? You know, I think it's a public thing. Her husband, Zane, appears to have voted <laughs> for the birdseed episode. In our, so we have this competition going and I'll get right to the calls. Uh, these are all ideas that were rejected as possible show episodes by us, for us. And right now in the balloting, and so we're going to do one of them, the one that gets the most votes. Right now, a show about Anne of Green Gables and a show about filibusters are tied. They're tied in the balloting. They are closely trailed by a show about birdseed. Specifically, where does birdseed come from? I'm just trying to explain that. Where does, why is there birdseed? In other words, are there farmers who grow sunflower seeds just so they can be birdseed? Uh, that would be like one of the fulcrums of this particular show. Uh, and a show about dreams, I don't know, something about people interpreting dreams and you maybe you would call up and get your dreams interpreted or something. It doesn't matter. It's trailing. It's trailing by so much. Uh, so anyway, that's where things are. If you want to vote, you could uh, go to Colin Show, all one word, Colin Show at ctpublic.org. Or you could just call. I think you call and tell McPants, 888. He seems like a trustworthy fellow. 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. All right, let's get back to the calls. We have the famous Iman on the line, but I think, you know, like she's so legendary, maybe we, we will wind up just finishing the show out with her. Let's see how that goes. Here's Robert from West Hartford. Hi, Robert. Hi, Mr. Macro. I was. Uh, I have an ethical question for you. All right. And so I was the... I was the marketing director at a very old New England theater. We needed to raise $18 million for a renovation. It was the theater's 150th anniversary year. Fundraising was super tough, but the theater had some history. Mary Pickford, John Barrymore, Mark Twain, Frederick Douglass all played or lectured there. But at some point, I lied and claimed on the record that Oscar Wilde performed there. He had it. He had performed at a venue down the street. <laughs> Given this was for the arts, would you say that it was 
permissible or ethical? Yes or no? I'd just like to add, maybe as a mitigating circumstance, the fact that Mark Twain lectured there as he's of equal or greater caliber to a while, perhaps that is my favor. Well, I think at the worst, Robert, it's a misdemeanor, right? I think we're not talking about a moral felony of any kind. Uh, and and I th- also think a lot of this, I'm just working kind of off the cuff here, but I, I think a lot of this, if we were to think about this, how many people in the course of donating to this laudable effort to save this historic theater thought, well, I wasn't going to give them any money, but if Oscar Wilde did appear there, I guess maybe I'll write a check for a hundred bucks. I, you know, I don't really think that's... Uh, I don't think that's anybody. <laughs> I don't think anybody did that. Uh, I, and I think, yeah, you got a little carried away. Maybe if you had it to do all over again, maybe you'd leave Oscar Wilde out of it. Or you could have said something like, you know, Oscar Wilde wanted to talk. He just never really worked it out. But we wanted and he wanted and it almost happened. And I, now I'm trying to figure out which theater it is. I mean, Ivoryton is one where a lot of those people came. But I don't know. I don't need to, I don't want to pry anyway. You might have to give the $18 million back. Um I think this isn't a horrible thing that you did. You know, ideally, probably you shouldn't be, you know, <laughs> falsifying the historical record of your theater. But I don't think you should lose any sleep about it. I will do something much worse over the next 24 hours. Uh, you know, I can get, I don't know what it is, but I mean, you know, my morals are so slipshod. Anything could happen. Does that, I feel a lot better. Thank, yeah, thank that's you. Right. yeah, it's okay. certainly – this is like an infraction, you know. You, you, the worst you would have to do is pay 25 bucks in court or something. But I'm going to waive the – I'm going to NOLO the whole thing. Nolly. Nolly the whole thing. <laughs> it would be good if I knew the terminology. Uh, all right. I, I'm going to nolly your whole case. And you'll, you'll also get uh, – what's the kind of plea where you don't – Is it? it's not called an Austin uh, thing where the you plead guilty but you really haven't admitted to doing anything, which seems like the opposite of pleading guilty. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, all right. Uh, here we go. We're going to uh, talk to Iman from New Haven, a legendary uh, caller to this show. And, and Hello, more. Colin. Hi, Iman. Uh, hi. First off, I want to vote for filibusters. Ooh. Just want to get that out of the way. Um, and then I did want to talk about sports in God. This was actually like sort of a follow-up to my call last time. Um, I guess I kind of recently, not recently, maybe in the past year, I have noticed that, you know, someone wins a championship, oftentimes the first, first being they think is God before, you know, their teammates, before, you know, their parents, the hard work, their coaches, whatever, um, it's often God. And so I've come to like, have this like theory that it isn't, I mean, I, I hope, you know, I, I kind of identify as like agnostic, maybe even like south of agnostic, closer to atheist, but I personally hope if there is a God that, you know, like maybe he's interested in sports, but really not having anything to do with sports outcomes and is more worried about like genocide or something like that. But I feel like the belief in God itself plays maybe a role in how successful athletes are. And I also think it's interesting, like, I heard that, like, at the Oscars, people won, and no one thanked God. So it's interesting to me, you know, like, that difference between sports and other things. Like, I, I, like God is so present in sports. And I guess what I'm trying to say is I would love an ethnography to be done on this topic. You know, I want to know, like, what kind of things people are doing to even, like, you know, like, win God's favor in terms of their sports. Like, is it just prayer? Like... 
Like, what do you do to get God on your side, or at least to believe that you've done enough to get God on your side? So right. that, you so, know, like, when you win. Yeah, a couple of things here. First of all, yeah, I mean, a lot of it depends. If you go back far enough, I just read Mary Beard's terrific article in the current issue of The New Yorker about uh, the funerals of emperors and the kind of death customs surrounding Roman emperors. And so you have a society there that's suffused with religion, with religious ritual, and we just understood you would sacrifice uh, a steer or a goat or something at the drop of a hat for almost any reason. But I I think one of the reasons that that kind of tradition, which I think has faded from an awful lot of things, I mean— they haven't so far anyway started sacrificing steers right before Supreme Court uh, decisions, but you know maybe they will, or, or but the interrogatories anyway. Um, but I think sports is a place where you know what we might otherwise call luck and chance play a big role. And obviously, I mean, I'm sure you've thought this through already, Iman. If you think that God helped you win this time, then God made you lose some other time, and God might have even made your first baseman snap his Achilles tendon, you know, in other exactly. words, <laughs> like, if you're yeah. going to see that God's really interested in this, well, then he's the reason your quarterback has a concussion right now. Um, so, I mean, it's sort of like once you open the door to God, you have to kind of accept either God's favor or God's disfavor. But but I, I do think also the other part of this is like, of course, the Oscars, they're all godless actor types anyway. They're, but also, yeah. also they can they can look around and they can say, okay, so, you know, by a vote of my peers, I was chosen the best cinematographer or the best supporting, you know, female actor. Um, you know, that's how I won. But sports yeah. sports is really, you know, they say baseball is a game of itch- inches. Sports is really much about, you know, something glancing off the fingertips of a player or just, you know, a a very favorable or very bad sequence of events. And so you can see why an awful lot of belief would be projected onto it. Also, the people in sports come up through a different tradition uh, that, you know, probably are more likely to be. But I think the ethnography idea is a great one. That's what we really do need. So I'm going to get you an $18 million grant. To investigate this, Iman, I'm going to say that uh, Oscar Wilde was very, very interested in this question because I feel like I, you know, <laughs> I, apparently that's something nobody fact checks. Uh, that's one of the things that I've learned from today's show. You can say almost anything you want about Oscar Wilde and people will not. Fa- he actually played uh, a wide receiver for in, very in the, for the Cleveland Browns in the very early stages of the NFL. All right. Thanks for listening today. We got to go, but we will come back. <laughs> 